0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkoff. and this week we are joined by Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center, who is in Alexandria, Virginia. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And we are also joined by uh, Evelyn Farkas of the German Marshall Fund, who is somewhere, I think, in our nation's capital. Is that true? Eve- that
1: is true, I'm here. So and, next week
0: I'll be in Asia. Oh uh, well, that's, well. We're going to prepare you for that with this conversation, <laughs> um, because we also have with us Jude Blanchette, who is the author of a new book called China's New Red Guards: The Return of Radicalism and the Rebirth of Mao Zedong, um, uh, which has been highly recommended to us by uh, our our favorite um, uh, sinophiles, including Anna Feifield. Uh, who is a regular friend of ours here on this show. Uh, welcome, Jude. Thank
2: you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Um, and, and we thought we'd you know, talk about China because it is actually the 30th um, anniversary of the Tiananmen Square uh, crackdown. Um, it's not exactly the 30th anniversary of the uprising since the uprising began uh, weeks and, and even and a few months before the crackdown on, on June 4th. Uh, and as it happened, I was in China then. It was my first trip to China and I was, we were putting out a, 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 a newspaper there around a international financial meeting and I was staying there for weeks and weeks and weeks. And we were publishing out of the offices of uh, China Daily uh, and which were pretty rough offices, I should say. And uh, every day, people would go down to Tiananmen Square for months uh, uh, to participate in this party-like atmosphere, uh, including members of the Communist Party, including you know, people who were upstanding in the hierarchy. And, and you got the sense that things were really changing in China. And the level of hope and enthusiasm, the celebratory feel of all this, was just infectious and so powerful. And if people who weren't around then may not recall, but this was kind of a moment in world history um, where there was this kind of people power revolution going on and, and it was happening in Eastern Europe uh, uh, and, and, and it was happening in places like the Philippines. And you had this sense that all the bad old days were over and uh, we are heading into new era of enlightenment, um, which is why your book is such a downer, Jude.
2: <laughs> Sorry about that, David.
0: Uh, but, but but you know perhaps you could put the the punchline of your book in the context of you know this sort of China's last thirty years that there has been hope and growth uh, and new freedoms and new opportunities in China. Uh, but particularly with the, the rise of Xi Jinping, there's also been something else.
2: Yeah, well, first of all, I really appreciate the opportunity to have the discussion today. And, and China seems to seems to be on the, the tip of the tongue of, of pretty much everyone I, I've talked to over these past couple of weeks. I think for all of us who've been looking at the bilateral relationship over, over the past few decades, it's really jarring to be in this moment where... We're seeing the first and second largest economies in the world be careening towards more overt, open, geostrategic competition. And certainly those of us who studied in China a long time ago and and for you did some work there, it really is, um, I think, a um, a sense of betrayal that China of 2019 has drifted so far from where the promise seemed to be. Uh, just a few decades ago, but what I, I think it's important to remember that the the great change and, and uh, sense of freedom and sense of new possibilities is still the story of China in many ways and even as we look at a China under Xi Jinping that is seeing a much more concerted form of, of aggressive authoritarianism and, and control, the average Chinese citizen in 2019, no matter where they are in the country has infinitely more Uh, opportunities and options at at their disposal than did their their forebears three or four decades ago. But, and I think this is the big but, um, clearly old ideologies die hard, and clearly the Communist Party's desire to stay in power was far more acute than many of us gave it credit for. And what you witnessed on the streets of Beijing, Ah uh, th- three decades ago uh, where where the P- People's Liberation Army rolled its tanks into the into the city and opened fire on on the residents to Beijing was for for most of us really just a a uh, a shock and I think for many of the Chinese people a shock that the the party had clear red lines about uh, about how much tolerance it had for a, a discussion of democracy and freedom.
0: Well, I guess one of the core questions that that one has, when, when dealing with China and change, um, is just how they're prioritizing change and what those red lines are and how they shift. I've probably been to China 20, 25 times since then. And each time you see areas of real progress, uh, but certainly in the past four or five years, uh, there has seemed to be a clearer delineation of lines with regard to the role of the party um, um, uh, not diverge from the party line and key areas, uh, freedom of expression, uh, concern about groups that might be sources of unrest like the Uyghurs. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's almost like there's, you know, when, when, when an economy grows like China has for the past 40 years at averaging 6% a year, there's a big concern about the overheating of the economy. There is also a seemingly corresponding political concern about the overheating of the society mm. and the desire to manage that.
2: Yeah, the, the the simple story to to what has happened in China over the past five or six years is is Xi Jinping. And, and I think for most of us up until quite recently, that was the that was the the proximate and the ultimate answer as to what had happened. Xi Jinping comes into power in late 2012. He looks out over a political system that is um, non-loyal, unloyal to the Communist Party of China, is flirting with Western ideas of constitutionalism, free markets, political pluralism. He sees a Communist Party, which is is rampantly corrupt and is devouring itself from the inside. And he sees a political system that is directionless. and, And he decides, essentially, time to crack the whip. Uh, time to reinstill some discipline over the political system, over the Chinese people, and time to make the party again the paramount political institution. And for us here in the United States, it's time to have China play a more aggressive, assertive role on the world stage. And while I think that is a a good story, and a lot of that is correct, I think it's important to maybe pull back a a few years earlier, and really the, the demarcation or the inflection point is 2008. And that was, of course, the year of the, great, the global financial crisis when reformers within the Chinese system, economic reformers, really got a gut punch because the, the model of Western capitalism that they had been pointing to, saying, this is something for us to emulate, now collapsed before their very eyes. But you also had China successfully holding the, uh, the Beijing Olympics in 2008, um, and you saw a resurgent uh, nationalist sentiment as China's role on the world stage was was rising. Um, so in many ways, it, it was an evolution that started in two thousand eight that Xi Jinping acted as a as an accelerant of. Uh, but the end result is we're dealing with a very difficult, a dif- different political system in China than we were just just three or four years ago, and one that is now coming into direct conflict with the United States, but I but also with with countries around the world who are. Now rethinking how they engage with a aggressive, a, a assertive China, not only in terms to not only in terms of its military posture in the Western Pacific, but Chinese investment across the Eurasian landmass, uh, Chinese investment in its strategic investment in places like Latin America and Europe. So the whole world is having a rethink now uh, on China. Albeit the United States is is playing the, the leading role here.
0: Well, leading or or certainly. Um... Uh, most prominent reactive role. Rosa, when you were in the uh, Pentagon, uh, it was right around the time that the United States was sort of pulling away from a decade and some of of focusing on terrorism as the central organizing principle of U.S. power and shifting the focus to the rise of great powers and particularly um, to the rise of China, which if you go to PACOM in Hawaii. You know, they, they, they've been the ones hammering the drum. China's changing its role, building a blue water navy. This week, uh, there was a kind of an interesting incident which caused a bit of a kerfuffle in Australia as the Chinese uh, sent a small task force of three ships into Sydney Harbor uh, in what some people saw as a, as a flexing of muscle um, since it was a trip back from the Persian Gulf and you know, there's no reason for them to go to Sydney other than to show themselves. Uh, and so, this, this, th- you know, between this and what what Jude was talking about, the whole Belt and Road initiative, you've got China flexing its muscles, saying it's going to lead. At the same time, that it becomes a little more hardline, um, and you know, that's had economic effects on things like seeing Chinese companies like Huawei as an extension of the government. Um, but it does seem to be kind of, you know, the big reordering of the global order. Um, And I'm just wondering if based on, you know, sort of your experience, do you think the US is keeping up with this or are we reacting mostly?
3: I think that we are very focused on China. Certainly I think the Pentagon is very focused on China which is unfortunately not the same as saying that we're keeping up rather than reacting. You know, I, th- I think both are true. I, you know, I, I think that there, there has been a, a, a shift that is not entirely in the imaginations or, of, of wishful thinkers uh, towards China in terms of just the, both a shift of resources within the Defense Department, um, a shift of, of energy and attention um, that, that is real, uh, at the same time, I think that at the Trump administration, as the Obama administration before it, continues to find it quite difficult to disentangle itself from other regions where, arguably, we should be paying less attention in order to focus more on China. So, so, so a little bit of both. Um, I, one, of the, I, I do think that your. Absolutely right. That this presages a a large and potentially pretty scary shift in the global order. My my favorite um, my favorite factoid right now is that, as I think I mentioned on one of our previous podcasts, there's actually an an, an international organization that tracks the bellicosity of rhetoric around the globe using uh, artificial intelligence to sort of keep an eye on news reports, um, uh, official statements, government documents. And there has been a 10% increase in the global bellicosity index in the last few years, almost entirely as a result of increasingly bellicose rhetoric from the U.S. and China towards one another. Um, and, And that's, you know, I mean, on the one hand, that's a little bit goofy, um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, in international affairs, words matter. They are taken seriously, um, by citizens of the U S by citizens of China. They're taken seriously by the military. They, they increase the likelihood, uh, that small things get escalated more rapidly. I think just in the last few days, we've seen that kind of rhetorical escalation once again, um, um, so yeah, it's something to be, to be worried about.
0: Evelyn, why are you going to Asia?
3: <laughs> to fix that. Uh,
1: well, um, so I don't like to say ahead of time where I'm going because I'm paranoid. So I'll tell you after I come back. How about that? But it's okay. basically fact finding.
0: Okay. And as you- And can- I will
1: have a chance to see how China is exerting its influence in the region um, in the security realm, as well as also in the trade realm, but in particular in security. And, you know,
0: you're not going to be like, you're not going to be like assessing China's influence on, on the beaches of Thailand. It's, it's more of a business trip. It's
1: more of a business trip. Exactly. But I, but I will say, um, I mean, it, You know, this bellicosity rhetoric, as you noted earlier, I think in our earlier taping, that, you know, Corey is notably absent because she's decided that she has to do work. And there's a big conference in 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 uh, in Singapore. And so and at that conference, there was quite a heated, you know, uh, maybe not exchange because it wasn't it wasn't a, a conversation, but the Chinese and the U.S representatives so our acting defense secretary and the Chinese defense Minister had quite sharp words to say the Chinese said that you know if anyone threatens the sovereignty of China that they will uh, take action to which of course also the Taiwanese responded by said Taiwanese defense minister responded by saying that that was offensive um, and dangerous so um, things are heating up uh, certainly rhetorically and also of course militarily we've seen, at least I don't I don't consider this bad heating up because I think we need to do freedom of navigation missions, you know, to assert the fact that these are international waters where the China is moving and acting and building, and they're trying to cut off access to people, you know, countries that have legitimately have access to these areas. The Japanese are also flexing their muscles, and they um, this was very little reported on last week. But when Trump went to Japan, one of his visits was to. Essentially, one of two new aircraft carriers, and I don't know if you guys covered this on Deep State last week, but um, it's a pretty big deal that the Japanese are stepping up in this way. They've essentially created aircraft carriers by retrofitting, by changing the configuration of existing ships that they have so that, that American or Japanese F-35s can land on the decks of these ships. So this is the first time Japan's had aircraft carriers since World War II. This is obviously strong signaling vis-a-vis uh, China. The, the Japanese have also started doing more patrolling um, in the, in the uh, Ryuku and, that, and the um, Senkaku Islands, and particularly the Senkaku are islands that the United States believes are actually not disputed, that they're, that they're outright Japanese territory, but the Chinese are refusing to recognize that. So um, there's been a lot of rhetoric, uh, some more activity, um, unfortunately, very little diplomacy.
0: Um, so- can, I,
3: can I interrupt to ask a really important question of all you experts? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, as you know, I, I have two sick kids and my husband is picking them up and one of them has a stomach issue. Would you recommend in that situation that a stop for donuts be, be made or, or would you maybe
0: <laughs> not that so sounds much?
3: Sounds like a fake stomach <laughs> issue. Uh, like, like, are donuts recommended as a, as a treatment for?
0: Well, that's a really interesting question. Jude, do you have a perspective on
2: <laughs> Yeah, so so nine out of t- ten sick kids recommend donuts as the preferred okay. treatment. Okay, so, all, uh, all
3: right then. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
0: yeah, but I, see, I have a different approach. My, both my kids now are in their twenties, um, and and so you know, my experience with parenting would suggest, say, go ahead and have the donuts. And so when they get home, and then they say, "But I I'm sick," you said, "But you had donuts."
3: Aha! Uh-huh. That's very devious, David.
0: You you see it's and so you know if they feel <laughs> up for the donuts let them you know hang themselves that's, that's-
3: uh, <laughs> all right okay i don't mean to interrupt this important conversation i just i just i knew you guys would have some insight on this
0: yeah no no i, I appreciate that and of course a, as i'm sure you know um uh uh, uh jude uh, you know as soon as as um uh uh, Evelyn referred to them as the Senkaku Islands. I immediately <laughs> tried to correct her and, and refer to them as the Daoyu Islands or the Daoyutai Islands. But, um, Only because,
1: what are you, a Chinese, like um mole?
0: Uh, d- d- oh, well, no, I, there are two sides to this story. I, I also think, by the way, as a, as a footnote, and we're not going to get into this here unless you really want to, uh, those islands in the uh, are, are going to be whatever China wants them to be. And the United States is never gonna go and get in a big war to stop China. Just and you know, it's this is sort of their neighborhood, and they're gonna get to do whatever they want. And well
1: they, and they, I'm gonna take the Japanese side on this, and our government has too.
0: Oh, I know. I, and we'll will do we'll be belligerent right up until the moment we're not. But but in any event, we we can come back to that. Jude, I guess the, the question that's posed by all of this, though, is not just you know, um, does not just pertain to what Xi Jinping has done in the past several years. The question is, for how much longer do you think that this hardline movement that you write about is going to remain the guiding force? Is this, is this something, I mean, you know, it's, it's a, it's a a sort of resurgence of Maoism that you talk about. So in that sense, you know, that's something that goes back to the late forties Um, And and so you might argue, well, this, this is just a big strain in Chinese life and it's going to go on for the foreseeable future. Or you could say, well, Xi Jinping sees this as a tipping point because of economic growth and engagement in the world. And this is kind of a control that's going to have to be on China for five years, 10 years, 15 years, but that they also anticipate an end to it.
2: Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think so much of U.S. policy, at least economic policy, has been predicated on this idea that there is a robust, if oftentimes silent, group of reformers within China's political establishment who, who are going to be there essentially to nudge China back in the direction it needs to go if, if we empower them or if we give them enough uh, sticks or carrots. Uh, it's pretty clear that Xi Jinping does not have a reformist bone in his body and is a, is a make, make China great again, sort of great power nationalist. And there's also no countercurrent of robust liberal ideas that has any traction in the political bureaucracy or hierarchy, or even in an intellectual movement that's in place to push China back into a, into a different political trajectory. And circling back to the discussion that, that was just being had a few minutes ago. Also, what's feeding into China's political calculus domestically is its relationship with the United States and and how it's viewing the United States' ultimate objective and goal. And the lack of clarity from the United States on precisely what it is we're pursuing vis-a-vis our on the trade side, the the USTR-led trade negotiations, but across the entire United States government from Department of Commerce with its uh, with the Entity List decision and, and uh, export controls, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., CFIUS, um, all these actions are not particularly well coordinated towards a specific end goal in mind. And so what that does is this is feeding a narrative in Beijing, which has been there since the days of Mao Zedong in the 1950s, that the United States is hell-bent on either regime change or, or active outright containment to, to thwart China's rise. And so whereas... 10 years ago, a hardliner or a hawk in China would have to do a fair amount of dot connecting uh, to, to make that argument. Now, Mike Pence, uh, Vice President Pence's speech from, from last fall uh, does, does just good enough for, for hardliners in Beijing who are looking for, for external evidence to, uh, for confirmation bias. So the, the environment was already getting more difficult for the prospect of a trajectory change in China as it was under Xi Jinping. Uh, a, a downturn in US-China relations without a clear articulation and, and a, a credible articulation of what the US goal is, I think just makes that, makes that even harder. And I'm not, by the way, saying we should adopt our policy out of a concern for what the hardliners do in Beijing. But I think we do have to recognize that uh, what, what happens here and how we talk about China feeds into China's policymaking process.
0: Well, it's an interesting, it's an interesting situation. Obviously, it's kind of the interesting situation um, geopolitically, but not just in the context, Rosa, of bilateral relations between the world's two greatest powers, the United States and China. I, I sort of look at the moment, you know, and when I was starting to, and I've just had the chance to start reading Jude's book, but I'm, I'm really, really engaged by it, and I think it raises some important issues, and of course. One of the echoes that you hear as you read this book is here in China was this kind of nationalist, top-down, hardline movement that we thought had abated and is now coming back. Um, And although it's clearly a Chinese movement, there is an echo to what's going on in Europe where you have sort of nationalist, right-wing movements um, that we thought were dead uh, at, at as of the 40s, now returning. You, you have something else different, though, Rosa, which is that when fascism was on the rise in the 1930s um, and there were some bad guys out there, there were some good guys, too, who at least would offset it. There was Roosevelt. There was um, Churchill. There was a Western alliance that said no. But right now among the world leadership, every major power, and, and by every major power, I mean the US, I mean the Europeans, uh, to some degree, the Russians, the Chinese, even the Indians, are seeing a resurgence of nationalism, and there are no countervailing forces among the leaders on the world stage. Certainly none that um, can, can offset this seeming reset back to nationalism, Um, away from internationalism and towards authoritarianism. And I'm wondering if you think I'm overstating that uh, or if you think that's concerning, Rosa.
3: Um, I think you're overstating it a little bit. Um, I think that although we have seen a really worrying rise in sort of populist forms of nationalism that tend to align with the far right, uh, in countries around the world, um, particularly uh, uh, you know, of concern for the U.S. in terms of our European partners and allies. Um, that, that is absolutely true, but I don't think that we have reason to think that all is lost at this stage. Um, you know, I, I think it, it, it's, it's being contested right now. Um, and although no, there's, there's, there's no great charismatic leader emerging as a voice for democracy and tolerance, uh, and a more pluralistic conception of what democracy should mean. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't plenty of voices in, in the United States, in Europe. Um, you know, while well, no one would say that you know macron has emerged as the charismatic leader by any stretch of the imagination for instance he has been a voice uh, of moderation you know ditto uh, ditto germany um, you know that we're still and, and, and in terms of the eu elections that have just gone by uh, in terms of elections in many individual states while we have seen some victories uh, on the part of right wing parties we've also seen uh, some setbacks for right wing populist parties. so so you know we'll we'll see and we'll see what happens in the in the u s. elections, obviously. I, you know I think if Donald Trump wins, if if we get uh, you know if we end up with a brexiteer as the Prime Minister of England, which unfortunately does seem quite quite possible, um if we end up with Donald Trump still in the White House after the next election, um, uh, that would be that would be scarier, but but I I think that the the this struggle is very much ongoing, and I don't think that the balance has decisively tipped towards uh, uh, right wing nationalism, notwithstanding the lack of of very you know visible individual champions for pluralistic conceptions of democracy.
0: Um, Evelyn, it's the same question. It's a big question. I want to get Jude's perspective too, is just how, how, what we're seeing in China, what we're seeing in Europe, what we've seen from Trump, what we're, what we've seen in Brazil, what we've seen in India, you know, to, to what extent is this a kind of, uh, you know, a, 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 an era defining change, or do you think it's a momentary aberration?
1: Uh, I mean, this is a hard one to answer because, you know, we've we've had instances in the past where we've had, you know, protectionism and rabid nationalism, and then you know, war broke out, and uh, we <laughs> and and we went to an international order that tried to protect us from such vicissitudes. Um, I just had to say that word. Um, uh, so I, uh, you know, I'm not a historian. I'm a political scientist. Um, I, I don't know, I, I, but I'm also an optimist. So I like to think that the negative forces have not prevailed and that um, change is still possible. And that even, you know, China, to, to some extent, can become more democratic. I don't mean to sound naive because, of course you know we we put a lot of we we staked we, we put a lot on the line with china to try to make them you know the 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 rational stakeholder or what was the term that we used that they made up under the responsible stakeholder the responsible stakeholder under the bush administration and that that policy was essentially one that prevailed that continued even though we had a lot of data points to that should have caused us to hedge faster than we and and maybe more quietly than we have now, you know, because now we're deciding, okay, we're going to try to hedge um, and we're doing it in this really um, haphazard and and a bit frightening to the people who eventually will have to decide where they stand when all this shakes out. And those are mainly leaders of smaller countries, uh, particularly in Asia. But, you know, I think, I think there's still a hope that, Things can change in China. There are obviously a lot of Chinese who would like a more free society, um, starting with the Uyghurs, of course, but, the Tibetans and others. But, you know, the reality is that we don't know how this is going to, how this is going to shake out in the end. And so we have to hedge. And and but the but again you know democracy is not something that you achieve and then you go back and you sit and eat bonbons you know you're on your velvet chaise lounge you know you, we have to work at this together, and I I guess ultimately I just come back to we have to work at this all is not lost it you know if you don't fight though it can be lost uh, or you can result in war which will then come you know there'll be a higher price to regain your democracy and your freedom and your economic well-being.
0: Well, Jude, one of the things that you reference in, in, the, in the book, even in the title of the book, is this idea of, of, of Red Guard, the idea of a generational issue. And I think important to this whole discussion is whether or not what we're seeing here is a shift that will have a lasting impact on the next generation of leaders after Xi Jinping. What's your conclusion in that regard?
2: Yeah, and if I can, if I can uh, play the trick, David, of, of saying um, I think the, the the better question to ask is um, how the current of the current of ideas and events globally is impacting uh, what's happening in China. And and on this, and maybe I can also take a stab at the the question you just asked. I, I take a much darker view here, and uh, I see what's gone, what's transpired over the past couple of years, starting in, in 2016, when we had a, a, a cascade of really significant, important events, not only Brexit, not only the, the election of Donald Trump, but a host of other events in China, in Asia, globally, as marking really the beginning of a new, a new epoch or a new paradigm. And I think this will, we will date, you know in 10 years or so, when we look back on when the change happened, we'll see that 2016 period as being pretty significant. And I think this is one in which the new era is defined by a, a rethink of, of globalization and of global value chains and global supply chains um, that, that puts prominence on national security concerns, which is what most governments are now doing when they look at cross-border M&A and cross-border investment and where, let's say Microsoft routes its supply chains. We're seeing the, that frontier technologies are almost all dual use now. Uh, whereas uh, 15, 20 years ago you had a much more limited set of dual use technologies that had uh, that were really epoch making now we 're seeing um, ev- everything in the ICT space, artificial intelligence robotics 3d printing these are all dual use technologies, so sovereigns are still are, are increasingly going to be bringing more scrutiny to how these are developed in the private sector and distributed globally. Um, the faith in elite institutions continues to to drop, but crucially for me, this new national security first perspective, which China has had under Xi Jinping, certainly for the past three or four years, four years, but now we see in the United States where we hear statements like, you know, economic security is national security, um, coming from senior Trump administration officials. So things like the WTO aren't, aren't designed to, to live up to uh, having major powers throwing around national security as a get out of jail or, or as a chit to get out of the WTO. So under this operative paradigm of national security, I, I expect we see global economic activity really starting to uh, alter course but, but begin to atrophy and shrivel up. Uh, more secular long-term uh, slowdown in, in global growth leads to domestic economic slowdowns, and, and as we see, populations tend to get more populist and nationalist in an era of a perceived or actual shrinking pie, and and China fits squarely within, uh, you know, smack dab in the middle of this. So in terms of the an optimistic scenario for whether that's bilateral relations between US and China, or just China's own domestic trajectory, uh, I, I'm not very sanguine, and I think we should strap in for three to five years of a, of a significant um, of a painful period of finding a new new equilibrium between states controlling uh, domestic economies, technology and, and how they integrate with, with globalization. But I think this period is really just begun.
0: Well, Rosa, I think somebody has usurped your role
3: has out apocalypsed <laughs> me for the day. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, do you want to reclaim your?
3: No, no, I will give it away
0: um, what did your kids do? did they get donuts
3: um well, they're not they haven't shown up yet nobody's standing in front of me with blood gushing out of their ear, nor is anybody standing in front of me doing anything even more unsightly um so that's that's a good sign I assume they're off getting donuts instead being being soothed by fried grease and sugar
0: as as they should be as, <laughs> as people are in countries across the world <laughs> Um, as you know um i'm sure evelyn when you're in asia you'll discover new ways to have that done um
1: yes well i think they have their own version of donuts
0: every every place does uh, it's <laughs> that unites us and leaves me ending this episode um e- even slightly optimistic um despite um uh you know jude's uh uh, uh thoughtful and and worrisome observation I want to repeat, Jude's book is called China's New Red Guards, The Return of Radicalism and the Rebirth of Mao Zedong, um, and uh, it's available on Amazon, and I strongly encourage you to get it and read it. Uh, there is no issue more important, even all the issues we talk about every day. Um, nothing on the international stage trumps uh, the relationship between the U.S. and China, Uh, because we don't solve any problem from global warming to trade to security issues without understanding the nature of that relationship. So thank you, Jude. Good luck with the book. Um, Thank you very much. And um, Rosa, good luck with your kids. And Evelyn, good luck with your trip. Uh, And we can't wait to hear the report back. And we'll- Uh, And I encourage all of you to go to the DSRnetwork.com for other episodes of the podcast um, uh, or to listen to the other podcasts we've got. The Unredacted podcast has another uh, exclusive conversation with Hillary Clinton this week. Um, And um, uh, Washington for Beautiful People has some great stuff, including you can go back and listen to last week's great discussion on, on the show The Americans with its creators. Uh, so, we've got a lot of stuff. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, listen to it, and then go and become a member. Sign up. It's very inexpensive. Uh, you get swag, uh, and it helps us to do more shows like this. And um, as we near 200 shows, um, uh, I would say, you know, we've done our end. So, why don't you do yours and step up and become a member? Thank you very much. Deep State to everybody, Radio is a production we'll of the Deep soon. State Radio Network